Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a... A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Amy Dickman is a scientist working for the Wild Crew Unit out of Oxford, England. With her main research focus and hub being working with communities in Tanzania on human-wildlife conflict. Specifically... Alliance. She's very vocal in our community space in defense of trophy hunting and what it does for habitats and wildlife and people today under its current model. It may come to you then as a surprise that Amy is a vegetarian, a non-hunter and a self-proclaimed bunny hugger. Hold on to your seats because this is a very fast-paced conversation between two people with accents. You may have to listen to it twice. Once to understand the accent, and two because the conversation was so darn good. Uh, so, UK time, 11 a.m. right now? Yep. Yep. And you are still operating from home environment, still locked down? I am sadly, God, it feels like forever since I've been out to the field. It's just it's so depressing, obviously. It's understandable, you know, we know why it's got to be done. But yeah, it is quite different from normally traveling all over the world and spending a lot of time in the field and enjoying Africa and Ruaha. And it's just, yeah, it's quite different being stuck in a little Oxfordshire village for a long, long, long time with my own children, which, you know, it turns out they're quite hard work. <laughs> It's amazing. You, 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 tend, you do love your family. We all love our families, right? But when you tend to travel a lot, even my wife, my wife was like, Robbie, you know, don't you have a trip coming up sometime? Um, you just, you need to get out of the house. <laughs> You've been around here too long. Well, let me... Uh, and I'm usually the one that travels all the time. Yeah, it's hard. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, I always do a, a terrible job of introducing people because I tend to just like to start conversations. So, um, Amy, why don't you introduce yourself? And I'll add a couple of monikers, because I'm sure you will not introduce yourself the way that you introduce yourself via uh, email to me. Uh, so go ahead. Okay, well, my name's Amy Dickman. I am the director of the Ruaha Carnival Project in Southern Tanzania, which is a project we've been running it for about 10 years now looking at human carnival conflict. And that's actually been my speciality over the last 20 years. I've worked in Africa, working specifically on human carnival conflict, but over the last few years have been drawn more and more into these discussions on, on trophy hunting and the like, which uh, was never my intention, but seems to become more and more of a research focus. So yes, I'm a researcher. I'm based at the University of Oxford and spend a lot of time out in the field working with local communities. 
And uh, I apologize for making the, um, taking the liberty, but I just want to confirm you are a non-hunter. Indeed. Uh, Self-professed bunny hugger. Definitely, yes. I'm very much <laughs> bunny hugging <laughs> tendency. Uh, any other monikers, environmentalist? Definitely. So I think I came into this, you know, I've, I've always loved animals and it came from a real love of animals uh, into my career. And I just, I really wanted to save them that classic sort of feeling. And when I went out to the field, you know, things have changed so much in my view of this over the last 20 years in terms of conservation in general. You know, I went out and I felt that local people were probably the enemy at the beginning because, you know, I knew they were killing all these animals and it was yep. horrifying. And when I first went out to Namibia 20 years ago, I was quite horrified at that point that Laurie Marker, who ran the Cheetah Conservation Fund and still runs it, really would engage with everyone, hunters, the, the people who are killing cheetahs and without any judgments. And I really learned a lot from that and about that that's the way that you've got to move forward. And really everyone has a valid perspective on these things and you've got to understand where they're coming from. And when we moved into Tanzania, it was really looking at all these people doing horrendous killing and then still trying to understand what, why were they doing it? They have mm -hmm. these normal, you know, valid, nice people. So why are they doing it? It's understanding different perspectives. And I think that can feed its way all the way through to this discussion where yep. I'm a vegetarian. I love animals. I would never shoot anything or kill anything for fun. So there's a lot of that where I don't personally understand it. But equally, there's a lot to be learned from talking across these, uh, these different viewpoints and just trying to understand each other better. You know, you, you, you use the word perspective many times in what you just said and i would argue that your perspective and i'll say yours uh, very broadly and generally as a non-hunter as a vegetarian as someone that is not in the hunting camp your voice about who we are about what we do about the impact of the exercise is more powerful than my voice because my voice will always come across as self-serving Mm -hmm. Okay. Number two, specifically to you, I want to just say thank you. And I'll probably say it again at the end of this podcast that you don't have to be the voice that you are. Um, and, and I'm not going to, I'll say, I'll say f f quote unquote for hunting, uh, because I think that your voice shows the very rational explanation of what hunting is doing on the landscape because you've been there you've talked with the people you've seen the impacts but you also are very measured in that approach to say yes right now it is a very good thing for wildlife and conservation and people however there are things to be improved there are things that can always be improved it's not the panacea it is not the silver bullet and i think that as hunters and hunting, sometimes we get wrapped around the axle of saying, we are the be all and end all guys. And that is not yeah. the case. We, we, we have to be, we have to improve. We have to look at new models. We have to look at ways that we can ensure. And I think this is where it com comes down to it. The crux of the matter is that at the end of the day, the reason we do what we do, the reason you do what you do is that we want these things around for my savages, your kids, to see one day, to be able to experience, especially Africa, the way that we get to experience it today. Absolutely, 100%. I think, yeah, it's a really good thing to discuss because I'm always really uncomfortable that people like these binary camps. You're either pro-hunting or you're anti-hunting. And I think this is not true. We are all, as you say, we are passionate about wildlife and conservation and habitats. And if we can focus on what we have as a shared goal, to conserve those habitats in the best way moving forward, whatever the mechanisms need to be to deliver effective community conservation and make sure that it benefits local people, then that's what we should be focusing on. And I think that in this discussion, because people like polarization, they like to view me as pro-hunting, I'm pushing hunting, it's not true. And I think I, because I don't love hunting, I would, my ideal would be a world where we don't have to rely on hunting to maintain these landscapes. We would have all of us, hunters, non-hunters, whoever, value those landscapes enough to want to fund and protect and empower people through them without necessarily ever needing to step foot on it or kill animals, do anything. But that isn't the reality that we work in right now. Right. And you're right that I don't have to speak up. And many, many times, lots of people say to me, why on earth are you speaking up? Because you're going to be viewed as pro-hunting. You're going to be viewed as, is this way that's very easy to demonize. Right. But for me, 
the, the I have to stand up for evidence-based conservation and also community voice on this. That I feel is a responsibility. And I also see the genuine threat of very well-meaning campaigning, trying to take away, for instance, trophy hunting in African reserves without having a better alternative to exactly. secure that land. And that really alarms me. If there was any other major threat coming, you wouldn't you wouldn't hesitate from standing up and saying it. And I think that is what we have to do, even if it leads to abuse and polarization and mm -hmm. this view of me as some ardent mm -hmm. pro-hunter, which is not true, but that's just a byproduct of standing up for what I think is important in evidence-based conservation. So just to peel back a layer uh, a little bit, uh, growing up in England, never went on any bird shoots, your dad wasn't involved in shooting or hunting or anything like that? No, God, I used to be, I was literally, I've always been very much said the bunny hugger type. My brother used to go out with an air rifle and try and shoot local birds. And I would, I mean, crows and God knows what, and I would run around with a friend of mine and try and scare them away so that he didn't get to shoot them. <laughs> Obviously ending up like, you know, probably acting as some sort of beater and it probably made it easier for him. And all kinds of things, you know, I used to go out with my uh, stepfather on the boat uh, that we had there and he would go fishing. I spent my entire time either cutting off the hooks, which oh, again, now it didn't do any good because it just leaves hooks, but I would throw all the mussels back into the sea. I used to force my uh, sisters when we went out to the market in the, on a Saturday, we went on holiday, I used to force them to use all their pocket money to buy up crabs that were live crabs and then wow. take them down and release them back into the sea, which again, as a grown up, doesn't make any sense, but just this desire to save these animals from sure. this abuse was quite strong in that. So yeah, it was never... Yeah, it was, it's always ironic, my family laughed, that now I've ended up as this sort of bizarre face of some sort of hunting thing, which is just so not who I am. Well, then I think, um, you know, uh, you, you have put yourself in an in a awkward position <clears throat> in that you are so vocal because you are so articulate. And unfortunately, that we don't have many of those people in the hunting space that can really stand up and say, hey, here are the facts. Here's my, here's my position in a very non-emotional, non-confrontational way. And you really can't argue with facts. The only way you can argue with facts is screaming emotion. Absolutely. I love that quote that says you can have your own opinion, but you can't have your own facts. And we have to look for what the facts are and where we agree on, you know, they always say the facts are different from truth, of course. You know, the truth brings in beliefs and opinions and everything. But facts are facts. And there are some facts that we need to agree on before we can move forward. And I think a lot of that depends on where we want to go. I mean, you talk and you and I share, I think, this vision that we want, um, you know, these big, intact, functional landscapes with thriving biodiversity for our children, their children and generations to, to really value and for their own intrinsic value. Absolutely. But many people, interestingly, I've realized through the course of this debate, don't value that. That isn't the end point. The end point for them is often just at the stopping of the hunting is the end point. And many people will say, even if that leads to fewer animals being there, to smaller habitats, to less wilderness, that's, a, that's something I'm willing to have because I find the hunting so unacceptable. And I think often we assume we're having the same argument, but sometimes we're having different arguments because our, our intentions and our goals are truly different. You know, it's funny when you start scratching the surface of these NGOs that are against hunting, it doesn't take very much scratching to realize that they're actually not after that goal that we just articulated. They, they may be well-meaning and maybe that's where they started, but because the machine is so big today, it's all about the dollar, right? It's all about the pound. It's all about that fundraising goal. And, and sometimes it's, it's also generating the sensationalism that brings attention to them, which then again means that there's more fundraising opportunities coming in the door. Yeah, there's loads of dynamics going on that I think with big organizations, as you say, you end up with these sort of big mechanisms and everyone wants campaigns that people can get behind. And I think it reflects lots of things. There are people out there who are, of course, desperately sad as we all are about the destruction of the natural world and it really seems impossible to them that while lions are declining while rhinos and elephants and all the others seem to be under such peril that we have you know rich white hunters flying in and killing the last few that narrative is powerful and that narrative mm -hmm. is easy then to use to say actually this is something that if we stop this 
then you know the world will be much better and i think unfortunately what what i tend to stand up for it is saying this is much more complex than that mm -hmm. narrative um would have you believe and by doing something that is well-meaning you know you can understand why it's so compelling to people and why it gets people to to donate and to to feel empowered that they're doing something but if what they are doing is stopping trophy hunting but enabling far more leading directly then to far more poisoning and snaring and habitat clearance that is not something that if you ask those people they actually want right. so again those people if their aim in terms of the people who are donating and and impassioned by this if you ask them what do they want they don't want to replace one trophy hunted animal with 10 snared animals or speed yep. animals yep. they want animals to be safe and secure and protected which again may differ a little bit from what we view as a as a wild situation but when you talk to people one-on-one -on -one, they get the fact that things are much more complicated than it's usually presented to be and we have to start to, to understand that it is acceptable if in the uk people don't like trophy hunting first first thing we should ban it in the uk because i think that should be the first step not trying to impose it externally mm -hmm. but then even with import bans things making sure that we are aware of unintended consequences and making sure that we don't inadvertently with that good intention that you talk about inadvertently lead to more wildlife killings with the intention originally of having stopped because that would be entirely counterproductive on every level yeah i know i think as you said the the narrative that is used against us is such an easy one to everyone to jump on the bandwagon these big rich fat white people coming across to africa you know putting their pressures on on the black man and raping their resources from them it's an easy one the other easy one is that we kill and there's not there's no getting around that 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 is what hunting is and so one of the things that we constantly push and you mentioned it is the consequence it's it's very difficult and i remember shane mahoney and, and <clears throat> excuse me byron pace talking about action versus consequence and unfortunately i have no there is no way i can influence someone's reason someone's reason for action they may just like let's be honest they may just like killing things. I can't change that. Mm -hmm. uh, I can change though. I can, and I can't, I can try and influence what that looks like in the digital space. But beyond that, I can't do anything. All I can do is focus on the consequence of that action. Yes, Absolutely. you may not like that action. You may think mm -hmm. it's appalling. You may think it is the worst thing that humanity could ever do. But let me talk to you about the consequence of that action, the consequence of that rich guy. And here's all the things that we, that happens as a result of that action. That's where I, that's where our story lies to me. A hundred percent. I think this is exactly it. The people really do fixate. And a lot of it, when you start to deconstruct this debate, it is exactly as you say, a lot about people hate the fact there is something that people see as just sick and wrong about anyone killing for fun. The fact that, and maybe it's some sort of innate shame that that is such a deep human part of ourselves that we'd rather, you know, sort of shut it away, any sort of that bloodlust, you know, that sort of deep primal part of, of I presume what is a part of hunting, you know, that that, that feels shameful and wrong. People don't want to have any part of people killing for fun. It's just, it's a, you know, it's not acceptable. Why do you so think that, becomes, that is? Do you think it's because society in general has, has almost desensitized ourselves away from what the world is yeah i think yes i i think there is a judgment i do think there's an element of shame where it is part of a primal basic humanity i think you see it all the time with like when we deal with young men who are going out on lion hunts they are absolutely excited by it they are there is a proper bloodlust about it and i think it taps into the deepest primal parts of what it means to be a human out there and we like to think we're far from this we like to feel we've evolved from it but we all know with your basic instincts it's not people aren't that far from them that they're there and i think there is people like to distance themselves from that and they like to therefore the part of the distancing is judging anyone who still expresses that kind of um that kind of feeling overtly and so i think for a hunter to go out and kill something and pose with it and have their feet on an animal I mean, all those things that people see as as morally wrong as disrespectful that feeds into this feeling of revulsion uh partly because it's maybe something that people want to suppress in humanity you know and that's that's fair enough i understand why they want to do that but exactly like you i am not as i'm not as concerned about the motivation of why someone does something because we get a lot in these debates about you know hunters are psychos it's the first step towards murder or whatever 
serial killers. Serial killers. The serial killer comes up a lot, um, <laughs> and I have yet to see any. I've yet to see much actually. Um, you know, backing up that in terms of data, but. It, someone said to me once, because it all comes down to the motive, and I thought it was a really interesting example when they said, for me, it's about consequence. And then it comes down to this real judgment that some people, this kind of value ethics, tend to think the consequence doesn't matter as much as the motivation. Motivation matters more. I disagree. And I think most people, when it comes down to it, would disagree. Because someone said to me, imagine there are two doctors, two surgeons. You've got to go in for a really important operation. And Dr. One is incredibly well-meaning. He really wants to save your life. He's hopeless. He has a 90% mortality rate. The other guy is a, really doesn't care. He's arrogant. He, he just wants as many operations as he can. He's slapdash. Um, but he has, ironically, a sort of 70% survival rate. So who are you going to go with? The well-meaning guy who's likely to kill you or the, or the you know, evil guy who's ironically likely to save your life. The vast majority of people, if they were given that choice, would go for the second guy. Even though he's evil, they want the better outcome. And that's where... We wow. have to be thinking about outcomes in this stuff. And the outcome, even if you've got some psycho, fat, you know, some person that we could, <laughs> that gets the classic sort of opprobrium around this, if what they are doing has the positive consequence of maintaining habitats against bigger threats, of enabling conservation and enabling local people to have the rights to utilize their wildlife, then that is the consequence we should have focused on more than the personality of the hunter, in my belief. And the same goes for tourists. Mm -hmm. Most tourists don't go on a photo safari because, because they really want to care about how much money they're putting into the coffers of the, you know, the National Park Service. They go because they want nice photos, they want a lovely holiday, right. they want to swim in an infinity pool, have gin and tonics. No one really focuses on that part of it, but it's exactly the same. It's not their motivation, it's the consequence that matters much more to me, certainly. 100%. I love that analogy. That is a really good one. I'm going to, I'm going to, there's going to be a couple of one-liners that I'll take out of this podcast. I like the, I like that also that you have your own opinion, but you don't have your own facts. I like that a mm -hmm. lot. So you talk about fixation. And so I want to pull up, I've, I've written a couple of questions down here based on some of the things that people fixate about you on. Tied to this whole, like she's this pro hunting voice. And so I want to just clear the air essentially. So one of the things that is leveled against you all the time is that Amy Dickman gets her funding from pro hunting organizations. And that's why she is the voice. So can for the record, can you tell us one, if you've received funds from hunting organizations, and how much and when? Absolutely. So as you say, this has been something that definitely has been used actively in, in campaigns to try to discredit me and to try to show that I'm some paid mouthpiece to the hunting industry, in, in, despite being completely untrue. So the facts of the matter are that all of my salary, I've never received any salary for my research, what I do from hunting organisations in terms of what I speak out about. That's So my own salary and payment, I've never had anything from pro or anti hunting groups. That's entirely through Oxford, through donors that take no stand on that. I do run a field conservation project, the Rawaha Carnival project that we set up in 2009. And that one for our field work, you know, I was very much of the opinion and still am, that in Tanzania doing field conservation work, we need to work with all legal stakeholders. So we work with tourism companies, we work with donors, philanthropists, zoos, for instance, who are interested. And obviously that also includes um, trophy hunting companies because they are legal stakeholders in the Tanzanian space and have a real interest in this. So when I was much more naive, certainly, I uh, reached out to lots of the people and we desperately needed funding for what we do. And again, it's consequences. I think the money, how, you know, how they get the money and what they're involved in, I may not like, but I know I can do real good on the ground yep. with field conservation. So with all these different uh, stakeholders, we went and applied for grants. We got a grant of, I think, $20,000 or $25,000 from Dallas Safari Club and another 5000 from Safari Club International early on which is important for us. But when you look at it in the bigger picture of what we've raised for the project, it's less than 0.8% of what we've raised. And it was over seven years ago now. So it just is absolutely infinitesimal. And we've had far larger funding from groups that take an active stance against trophy hunting. So when people bring this up, I actually quite like it brought up because ironically, because I think if you're going to talk about conflicts of interest, let's talk about them and let's see who has which conflicts of interest, which is why if you look at my Twitter feed, I have a pinned tweet up there talking about all my conflicts of interest, financial, personal, professional, to show where these like, because we all have our biases and we all have our, 
are, are conflicts in certain ways, but those should be judged fairly. And on the other side, I hate having sides in this debate, but on the sort of <laughs> the anti-hunting side, I think there's a lot less critical examination of who is paying different people's salaries and different viewpoints there and, and why different people are invested. So let's have this discussion, but let's have it fairly and honestly and look at truly whether funding that came in to do field conservation work, specifically protecting livestock enclosures seven years ago, is likely to be the reason I am now standing up and getting hate mail endlessly um, talking <laughs> about evidence-based conservation. You know, it just, it wouldn't seem worth it to me seven years later. I just, I'm not that cheap. <laughs> no, 100%. And look, I, I was a professor for six years. And so I completely understand the initial first couple of years where you're just like, I am putting a grant in anyone's inbox that possibly could give me money. And lo and behold, a couple hit and you take the money and you do what you do. And, and honestly, when you're a, a young professor or a young field researcher, and, and, and let's be, and, I'll, and, and you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong here in that we're so naive when we do that kind of work initially, we have this, this ideal of what we're doing, right? We are changing the world in terms of our research and what we're doing and whatnot. And we really don't listen to anyone who gives us money, right? Because we know where we're going. And you're giving us money, great, because you believe in us, but we're heading to that horizon. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to, you know, we're not <clears throat> pandering to anyone that's giving us money. And that's exactly it. I think we should be able to take money from all the different stakeholders in this, as long as those stakeholders don't try to, to influence the outcomes or science or what you do. That is where the issue would come in. And we have been 100% clear because we have such a breadth of people from who hate hunting to people who are hunters, saying to them, you don't get, this isn't science for sale. You don't get to dictate what we do. You don't get to change the outputs. <clears throat> what you do get to do is support our field conservation work because that's where we have a shared goal somewhere in this space. And that's where it's really important. And I think it's a fascinating area to pick on because, I, and I, I sort of, I fluctuate between how to deal with this because still strongly to me, I feel we should be able to engage with all stakeholders. And I think that hunters should fund conservation work. If anyone, they have probably more of a responsibility because there is that killing of wildlife. And to me, it isn't about, again, where the money comes from. It's what we can do with it on the ground. And people have often said, well, why did you ever take that money? Because that's just made you look compromised. And I say to them, but if I didn't take that money because of my individual viewpoint on hunting or your individual viewpoint on hunting, I am doing an active disservice to the conservation of wildlife and communities engagement in that landscape. And that's not fair on them. So why should my moral com compass determine what is right in terms of field conservation? And so my view of it is if it's legal in Tanzania to engage with, if it fits the sort of university has their own regulations on accepting funding. So if it's legal and ethical in those frameworks, then, then that is my guiding principle. And I think the more we shy away from actually taking these kinds of funds, then ironically, it becomes a, a stick to beat the hunting organizations with because they say, well, they don't fund any conservation. Exactly. I think, you can't attack people for not funding conservation if then you attack the people who take the funding. It's very, it's very it's cleverly done. It's almost a catch 22, right? It's a catch yeah, 22. Yeah. So we should absolutely be able to take funding from anyone from a pro to an anti-hunting group, but we should all on every, whatever your shade of opinion is on this subject, none of us should have our opinions and our outputs affected by the views of those donors. And I would a hundred percent stand up for having never done that. And I never will do that because sure. I think the very evidence that I'm willing to stand up in such a contentious debate, which people have used directly to try to stop, to try to discredit me, our project, to try to stop people funding it, that has costs. There are costs to standing up and saying this sort of stuff. And if I was driven by money, if I was driven by popularity, I wouldn't be in this debate. But yeah. I am not in it for those things. Don't you, do you feel like, you know, and I think we've seen, it's almost, I don't know if it's a symptom of society or, you know, the, the scientific institution used to be this like bastion of unquestionable ethics, right? Unquestionable authority. like authority, right? This is what tenure is. Tenure is this idea that now that you've proven yourself, the university protects you because we need our science uh, individuals in the community to say what is truth and not be 
manipulated by one side or another, not manipulated by politics of the, the state or politics of the country in which they're doing the work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's almost a symptom that, you know, the fact, and, and using you as an example, obviously, that you get attacked for this position that, you, as you said, you took 0.8% of all the monies that you've raised over the last seven years or eight years or 10 years um, because of this supposed conflict of interest where in, in the past, I don't think anybody was actually um, questioned from a scientific perspective because it was just this, this, I, this thing that everyone knew, the university, the professor, the academic line of thinking was was exactly what the, the what we went into it for, right? Was this this definitely? I, I think a hundred percent. I think these these sorts of debates that we have, these very active debates, and you're engaged in as on social media. I think it comes out really surprisingly. There is a huge lack of scientific awareness of what real science and evidence and good evidence looks like. And whereas as scientists, we know this is why we have peer-reviewed science and journal information and why we have articles out there, because those peer of that peer-reviewed process enables that whatever bias as authors came into, whatever, whatever they brought with them into that study, and hopefully it was well designed, has gone through that sort of gold standard process of making sure that it's justifiable, that it's independent, that it's defensible. And that's why we rely so heavily on peer-reviewed articles. But hasn't the peer-reviewed process been bastardized now? That's the problem, right? That you can, there's all these, and I think you've, I used to get them all the time. You get these invitations to come publish in my journal. All it costs you is a thousand dollars and you get published, quote unquote. And now the the peer-reviewed process has been eroded and it it discredits you and me. I think definitely there are predatory journals. There are huge issues out there about, um, yeah, about, how, as you say, this sort of what is the gold standard, what should be the gold standard is getting eroded by things like predatory journals, pay to publish, all these kinds of things. But again, if you still stick to good journals, and that comes back again to people understanding the process. You know, if I'm publishing something in conservation biology, hopefully it's gone through a better system than some set up, paid for predatory journal. You know, and that's something that we've got to be, but it's a distinction that most people would never be able to make. And particularly now on social media, Social media has almost replaced it because anyone can write a blog or an article mm-hmm. and then it has a link and it's shared in just the same way as a, as a peer-reviewed piece. And so no one knows. They read this piece. It sounds authoritative. They have no clue about right. the facts behind it. And that's where I think we're getting a lot of this noise in the system because people don't recognize that there is a big difference between a grey literature report produced by a lobby group, whether that is pro or anti-hunting, to a peer-reviewed independent piece in a good journal that's based on data. Yeah. No, um, and uh, you know, unfortunately, young professors, because of the pressure of publish or perish, get pulled and lured into this trap of pay to publish. And the university system is almost, uh, we're way off track now, but the university system is, is promulgating this this idea that, hey, you've got the pressure to publish, so you need to publish, so I'm going to pay to publish, which means I'm going to publish, and that erodes my science, which then... Oh, I know there are so many issues with these kinds of things. And also, I think, while the peer-reviewed, while the good peer-reviewed publications are important, the other thing that it does is that it, it obviously um, doesn't enable a lot of the local stakeholders to have an equal say in this discussion. And that's, those voices, to me, are often completely ignored in this whole debate. And how do we both recognise... Um, you know, the importance of peer-reviewed, good, empirically-based science, but also recognise that isn't the only knowledge that's, um, that's valuable out there. How do we amplify the voices of people truly affected by these decisions on the ground in a way that is respectful and fair and really reflects what they think? I think these things are all, all challenges that we face in this discussion. So let me, um, let me throw another couple of questions at you. Um, yeah. Simple questions may not be simple answers. Yeah, okay, sounds good. So is hunting the same thing as poaching? No. Why not? So <laughs> people always say this, but it's, it's the most ridiculous analogy. It's like saying that shopping is the same as shoplifting because you're in both cases, you're taking something from a shop. That is not true. In both cases, they're very different. In the shopping, you are paying for something. It's regulated. It has taxes involved. It, has, it makes a broader contribution to commerce, to the system in which it happens. 
For the shoplifting, obviously you're breaking the rules, you're taking it, you're not giving anything back to the system. Very much the same with hunting and poaching. One is regulated and legal and provides bigger benefits. The other is obviously none of those things. So those things are just fundamentally not the same. It's often a conflation. You'll often see, particularly when people talk about elephant um, numbers, I see this a lot, that the combined elephant hunting and poaching is a threat. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. You need to put out how much of a threat is hunting and how much of a threat is poaching and what are the relevant benefits of either one of them. So you can't just conflate these things together. We see it all the time because it's a lazy way of suggesting that something, in my opinion, is a bigger threat than it actually is. So, Amy, are you saying that uh, hunting is the only way to save African wildlife? <laughs> no, I'm not, definitely. Um, and that, my project, my entire career has been really focused on new, resilient, different ways of, modern, of, um, of creating conservation um, sort of outcomes and strategies and how do we work with lots of different stakeholders to make that happen. So hunting can have a role in that. There may be places where hunting is the obvious mechanism. But there'll be many places where it isn't the place. And the same goes with photo tourism. The same goes with carbon credits. You wouldn't expect any single, single approach to be the silver bullet because that's just not how the world works. So in a complex world with complex challenges, we need a multiplicity of solutions. And hunting at the moment is part of that because we don't have viable better alternatives in many of the areas in which it is useful. Tell the, tell the three people that listen to this, this podcast that... Um... You've got a very cool system uh, tied to your camera traps. Oh yeah. And uh, how the, the, the communities themselves are incentivized by the types of animals and obviously the quantity of animals that are caught on the camera traps. Definitely, so we set up the project, as I said, about 10 years ago, and we spent a long time working with the communities. And obviously communities, it's not just good enough to stop uh, carnivores attacking their livestock, People need real benefits from living with this wildlife. So we talked to them and they said they wanted benefits in healthcare and education and veterinary medicine. And so we worked on all these things, we provided the benefits, but still people were killing the wildlife. And of course that makes sense. That's the obvious thing is what I would do. I would take the benefits and still kill the wildlife because then I get both benefits. Absolutely. Of reducing the risk and taking the benefit. Um, and simultaneously we were placing camera traps uh, out there and people were stealing the camera traps because they didn't feel engaged, <laughs> they were suspicious. So everything was going rather wrong, which is traditional. Um, and it was actually really happy that those things were going wrong at the same time for once this, uh, this sort of confluence, these issues was good because it suddenly took a step back and we were talking and we thought, well, why, rather than us doing the camera trapping, why don't we give the camera traps to the villagers and employ them and engage them in it? Because what we need is to make that step change from not seeing that the project is delivering the benefits, but it's the presence of the wildlife and the conservation of the wildlife that generates the benefits. So then when the, wild, when the villagers were doing the camera trapping themselves, we had a long process developing a program with them where every individual animal they recorded had a certain number of points um, with more points to more endangered species and ones that caused more conflict. So for instance, a diptych would get you a thousand points and an African wild dog would get you 20,000 points. And so every month we would tally up points and every three months the points will get transferred into those benefits the communities wanted. So focused on education, healthcare and veterinary medicine. And it was transformative because immediately it was very obvious that if villagers took steps to maintain habitat or to stop this guy snaring or to stop poisoning at this waterhole, they could use the camera traps to deliver those benefits because of the conservation. And it really changed it from us sort of telling people what to do, which is never going to work, to them thinking about what works for their villages and connecting how to maintain habitat and wildlife on their land. So it's been a really, really important way of connecting the presence of wildlife and the development of, you know, of benefits to the community. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's, it's so cool. Um, I think the, it's an out of the box approach, right? It's not the tradition. It's, it's not the, you know, we're going to do chili bombs and we're going to do electric fencing to keep elephants out of the mashambas and we're going to do honeybees and whatnot. But rather it's this, this total investment of, man, we know what, we want to give you things, but we want your investment in the giving things. Like you said, everyone would take both sides, right? I would take and take. Of course, why, well, of course, why would you not? And I always think when I look at conflict mitigation, which is obviously the majority of my career, people seem to expect things that you would never put up with. So if you had a marauding gang of rapists and muggers out on the street and they kept breaking into people's houses and attacking them, you wouldn't be happy if the police came along and said, look, we're giving you a slightly better burglar alarm. That is not going to make you feel happy about the presence of that gang on the street. You know, what you need to do is offset in a very real way the costs that are incurred on people 
with sufficient benefits to that community. And so I often equate it to cars. You know, you think if an alien came down from space and looked at these metal creatures racing around that kill thousands and thousands of people every year, you would wonder why we put up with them. People put up with them and not only put up with them, but pay large amounts of money for them because they choose to have them and they make their lives better. And those are the two critical elements that we have to have in wildlife conservation. How does the presence of wildlife not only make your life better, but make it your choice to have that wildlife there and make you fully invested in it? So I think that's an important step forwards. I think you've been, um, I think you need to change your career. You need to become like this analogy queen. <laughs> because, jeez, I, I can't keep up writing all your analogies. I think I've got like four or five that I'm going to use. One of them is definitely going to make it into the title of this, of this podcast episode. I just don't know which one. Shopping is, is not the same as shoplifting. It's a pretty good one. Um, so, so let me ask this as a, a final sort of putting a fine, fine point onto this discussion. We haven't really discussed... Uh, specifically lions, but that is one of your specialties. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is often brought up is that obviously hunting takes lions out of the population. And so from your perspective, I, I'm going to wrap three questions into one. One, are lions decreasing across Africa? And I know it's an obvious question. Two, what's the main driver of lions decreasing across Africa? And is hunting one way to potentially stop lion population decreases? Okay, yeah. So lions definitely are decreasing. They've dropped by about half in around 20 years. So we're seeing really quite a precipitous decline. In some areas, you know, Tanzania has seen a really sharp decline in lions. Um, there are only two countries in which lion numbers are thought to be increasing, at least in the period between 1993 and 2014, which was the last red list assessments. And that, that was in Namibia and Zimbabwe. And so both of those countries, interestingly, do use trophy hunting as part of their wildlife management. Again, only part of the whole. And it isn't meaning, this sort of answers your third question, but trophy hunting does not mean that it's not inimical to lion conservation. You, know, you can have growing lion populations and trophy hunting. You can also have, as in Tanzania, trophy hunting and decreasing lion populations. So the point is about how well managed are these areas? How well funded? What is the governance? What is the system looking like? And so people often criticize, <clears throat> for instance, Tanzania with this huge decline in lions they've had, but equally they have this, they still have maybe 40% of the world's lions because they have set aside vast areas for lions and for other wildlife, including for trophy hunting as well as for national parks. And often the trophy hunting forms these borders around the national parks. Mm -hmm. And the big threats to lions are the loss of habitat, the loss of wild prey, um, conflict with people. And much as people find it really counterintuitive to imagine, it's the huge setting aside of these massive wild areas, not talking about small canned fenced enclosures. We're talking about big wild areas, often around national parks, where it forms a buffer between the national parks and the human dominated land. And in those spaces, it not only stops the likelihood of land conversion, forest loss, it stops the, you know, the advancement of poaching and um, settlements and agriculture and all these kinds of things that would end up with far bigger conflict and far bigger threats to biodiversity. So yes, it can have a role to play. It depends how it's managed. It depends on how well funded and regulated it is. But just like with tourism, all these things should be assessed in how well they work in a place rather than just taken away with no consideration for what the unintended consequences will be. No, 100%. And um, I appreciate the honesty there because I think that's the whole point, right? I think we've got to fess up and be honest where things aren't going right. You know, there was that uh, study in Zambia where they showed lion populations rebounded after the hunting moratorium uh, in Luanga. And I think if you asked the majority of hunters, if you saw a lion population decreasing over time and there was a, a consumptive use model built into that area, would you reduce the quota in that area? And I think 90% of us, if not all of us would say, that makes yes, that makes sense. Why would, why would we continue to take when? Okay. Uh, 100%, I think this is where you need adaptive management. You need sensible scientifically based management. And we are very clear, particularly with lions, that if you take older males, I know people talk about it's reducing the gene pool obviously, but. The, but the whole point here is that if you take males... How is it reducing the gene pool if they've been breeding for 
for this eight, is nine the exact years. point. Yeah, exactly. If you take the males over six years old, they should have been breeding ready in a normal functioning ecosystem. This is very different from the kind of conflict-related killing we see on village land where lions have no value at all. There it's entirely indiscriminate. So pregnant females are taken, young males are taken. That is the way of driving population very quickly downhill. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is not have areas where you've got indiscriminate killing, but make sure that any killing that occurs is really considered and based on evidence and is not likely to be detrimental to the population. That does include, as you mentioned, you can have short-term moratoria. You have to have age and area-based regulations. You have to make sure that this stuff is considered. But that is why that's back to the difference between poaching and hunting that you can enable regulation if you have oversight in that. Mm -hmm. And if you can change regulation, you can improve it. We saw that in Mozambique when they started the point space model there. Um, and all these things can be tweaked and changed and if necessary, paused to allow populations to recover and yeah. then have quotas changed. That's all part of adaptive management. That is much, much better than having no management and no incentive. And I think just a point that's worth mentioning, because people think, and I often get this, people say, well, why not just take lions, say, off quota? Why not just hunt impala or buffalo or whatever else? You know, just hunt antelope because, because then you don't have to worry about the impact on predators. And that's really what annoys a lot of people is the hunting of predators. But certainly from our experience in Namibia, we saw that in the places where they relied heavily on extensive game, the predators then became just another huge net cost because to go and to kill a very expensive antelope was not worth keeping a cheetah around for. You know, so then there was huge extermination of these animals. And so ironically, what is probably a better option is to have a low and very careful quota and at a high price of, you know, the big cats in some of these areas, because then you have an incentive directly to keep them there. If there is no incentive and they're just predating on expensive game, then again, right. you'll get them lost. You've got to think about unintended consequences. Well, I think the side of the equation that I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about is that the adaptive management side of things has always tied to the wildlife. <clears throat> so for instance, adaptively manage your quota if your lion population is decreasing or any wildlife population is decreasing. But let's talk about specifically the big predators because the big predators are the big ticket items for these outfitters from an economic-based perspective that have invested a absolutely. lot of money into these concessions and they utilize, they absolutely rely, not utilize, they absolutely rely on these big ticket items to make it, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so the adaptive management, I think, also needs to play into, from a government perspective and a concession perspective to say, look, we understand we're going to put a moratorium on you for the next two years and three years and you're not able to take those big ticket items any longer. And because of that fact, we're going to drop concession fees over that two to three years so that you can make it so that you can keep doing what you're doing, keep doing the anti-poaching, keep protecting these large swaths of habitat that we know is so vital, so critical for these large carnivore populations to maintain, sustain and increase. Definitely. I think it should go far beyond the idea of just the government lowering the concession fees, because then you do also have to worry about thinking, is it then economically viable with them compared to competing land uses that maybe would be more attractive? So I think what we really need to do is have a sea change in how we value, truly value this wildlife at an international level. You know, how much are governments, how much are the international public really willing to pay for this? Because we have to move away. COVID has shown this more than ever. We have to move away from a purely user-based approach. We did a paper a year or two ago showing that there is at least a deficit of at least a billion dollars a year for protected areas just with lions in them, let alone the other protected areas. And so we are failing to translate this immense global value that we have with these species into real financial on the ground value for protection. And if we don't solve that side of the equation, we can tweak around with how much it costs to hunt an animal or how much a concession fee might be or how much the safari is, but it won't solve that fundamental market failure of translating that value down to the ground. And that's where we need real, real change on a very big, um, big scale, I think. That's a monstrous endeavor, Amy. Yeah, well, we've got to do it. We've got to do it. And it isn't that much. When I look at it, and I, I look at how much is in a billion dollars sounds a lot, but then I looked up a statistic, we'll have to check it, but it was something like the Americans spend like $7 billion, something ridiculous on lipstick. It was insane. So we'll find out the stats. But I was like, well, what is more important, lipstick or lions? You know, we have to change. You're going to be hauled across Twitter for your lack of scientific uh, evidence behind that statistic. I know, people are like, no, they spent 300 million on lipstick, whatever it is. It was something ridiculous. And there was, I started to look at this out of just the interest of comparisons. And again, I haven't got the figures in front of me, but 
the amount that Brits spend on drunken impulse purchases online was just, it was one study and it was staggeringly high. And so we are constantly making these decisions and we need to somehow prioritize. I think governments probably do need to play a bigger role because people are unwilling generally to do it themselves. But how do we actually truly work together? Because all of this stuff about conservation is, is linked in with much bigger issues about things like, you know, land conversion and climate change and biodiversity loss. So how do we pay as rich countries, you know, biodiversity credits for maintaining those areas? And say then, if you have a hunting moratorium, you could use your biodiversity credit pot to help to help offset those costs and allay the risks of land conversion. You could, you know, we, with Lion Landscapes, we help with something called Lion Carbon, where it's a Lion Carbon credit that's, in, that's specifically invested with biocarbon partners, landscapes that have both lions and rural communities there. So there's many different ways and novel ways that we can think about how to translate that value but it is it's not as big a deal as we think it is when we think of a billion dollars there are many ways to get it but we just need the political and the public will to have a new and a new approach to conservation we do need to do it well i think that's an amazing place to stop um it's been a hell of a conversation and your kids have not interrupted us so i was massive win well, yes, they are. I did hear them downstairs pressing the doorbell loads and those times. They're not tracked down for anyone who's worried, but they just enjoy doing that. And I was like, stop doing it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. And one, again, like I said in the beginning, from me as a hunter and the hunting community, we appreciate what you do and the way that you stand up very rationally, very non-emotively, um, and just speak the truth. And that's all we're interested in is the truth, right? So just yeah. thank you. No, thank you. And I think, yeah, the more that we can focus on what we agree on rather than where we disagree, then we can all hopefully come together and make a brighter future. Yeah. For people and for wildlife. Absolutely. So thank you, Amy. Cool. Thank you very much. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening as always leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the duck camp dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.